Hello, and welcome to Episode 4 of Special Ed Rising, the podcast, No Parent Left Behind. I hope you're doing well during this challenging time in our world. I hope you can find some comfort here while engaging in some information consumption and respite from your day's demands. In this episode, I'd like to talk about universal behavior management tools that you can use in your home and at school for those of you who are teachers to create a smoother functioning environment for your child and your family. Afterwards, stay tuned for our community share where you'll hear some uplifting news happening in the world of special needs, plus two new segments of the show that I hope you'll enjoy. So strap in and let's get ready to rock another win. When little people are overwhelmed by big emotions, it's our job to share our calm, not join their chaos. L.R. Nost When dealing with the negative behaviors of a child possessing a neurodevelopmental disorder, there are core universal approaches and strategies that are adaptable to each situation. Only the degrees of their use and effectiveness will vary child to child. As defined by the EPA, Neurodevelopmental disorders are disabilities associated primarily with the functioning of the neurological system and brain. Children with neurodevelopmental disorders can experience difficulties with language, speech, motor skills, behavior, memory, learning, and other neurological functions. The following is a list of neurodevelopmental disorders from Carla McGregor of Boys Town National Research Hospital. They are Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, Developmental Coordination Disorder, Tick Disorders like Tourette Syndrome, Intellectual Disability, Autism Spectrum Disorder, Specific Learning Disorder, Child Onset Fluency Disorder, otherwise known as Stuttering, and Speech Sound Disorder. We apply different strategies according to each unique situation, and that choice of strategy is supported using a multitude of behavior management tools, such as reward systems, to advance a strategy and give it its strength. Strategies often share some commonalities and can have a crossover of approaches or tools among them. Yet, they must also allow for flexibility and creativity. The tools that I find most commonly effective in my work ask a lot of you as parents because the process is not quick in many instances and requires your commitment. In this episode, I will touch briefly upon these tools in order to give you the options to consider and pursue with your support system, school officials, and caregivers in your life. And for teachers, I feel these are important components for every classroom. The first tool is one that I spent the past two episodes sharing with you, and that is mindfulness. Giving space to your response will go a long way in how that response impacts your child and how they are either elevated in their negative behaviors or eased. To learn more on this topic, listen to the aforementioned episodes that do a deep dive into mindfulness and mindful parenting, as well as check out my three-part blog series on my website. The next tool is well-known. I mentioned commitment earlier, and positive behavior rewards or reinforces demands it. Positive reinforcement, as defined by the May Institute, refers to the process of providing a reward to strengthen a particular behavior. The theory is that the rewards often labeled reinforcers increase the probability of a desired behavior being repeated in the future. The key is not to try and resolve too many behaviors all at once. 
Instead, select one behavior at a time that you would like to extinguish and reinforce each time the desired behavior occurs. In my work, I've always chosen and have always advised that your first option to change negative behaviors is with a positive behavior reward system. We want to give every child the opportunity to be acknowledged for their appropriate behaviors while having a positive experience, and by using a planned reward, we increase the likelihood of this. Examples of reinforcers are token systems. Chips, food, stickers, stars, checks, praise, and anything visual or tangible that motivates your child. There are ample templates to download off the internet, and these systems exist in many forms as charts, boards, and checklists, etc. Two keys to success, I find, are one, consistency in the delivering of the reward. It is so important to plan the time increments ahead of proceeding. Early on, you want to give the rewards frequently and gradually lengthen the period in between reinforcers. Two, use the specific rewards solely for the designated behavior you want to elicit. You don't want to give the same reward at unrelated times because it may lose its effectiveness. Some might look at rewards and confuse them with a bribe. I used to think that before I got into the business. But they aren't. They're different. They're not the same, I should say. They're different. According to Betsy Cadell, rewards are earned for good behavior. Bribes are offered to avoid or stop bad behavior. It's easy to identify a bribe because most often it comes from an exasperated adult in need of a quick fix. For example, if you stop doing that, I'll give you something immediately. Unfortunately, the parent who promises ice cream to a defiant child is actually teaching the child that defiance equals ice cream. Rewards, on the other hand, are discussed and determined ahead of time between you and your child. They can also be communicated to your child after they've completed a desired task. Either way, your child only receives the reward once they've displayed positive behavior, solidifying this connection in their mind. Rewards reinforce that the child has acted appropriately, whereas a bribe is an offer made to get your child to stop negative behavior, which only then reinforces that behavior. Abby Barnes is a speech-language pathologist at Expressible. She states, When children are routinely bribed, they start to learn that acting poorly is key to getting something they, they want in return, which in turn can perpetuate a cycle of bad behavior. This strategy can be an involved task as we need to first find out what motivates a child. Many kids don't have that obvious seminal thing that they would love to do anything for. So many times <laughs> I've seen kids not budge when they're offered something that they like because they are so invested in the behavior which is driven by their overwhelming desire for something. Sometimes it just takes longer to find out what revs your child's engine. But also remember, these rewards don't have to be tangible. Here are a few non-material things that, that many children will enjoy, suggested by Sonia Pellini in her article, Positive Reinforcement in Children, How to Get It Right. Hugs. Spending time with mom and dad. Extra time to watch their favorite show or play their video games. Extra privileges. A high five or a thumbs up. And positive feedback with specific information about what the child got right. And just a note on praise, nothing beats praise and showing you care to elevate your child and let them know that they are loved. So while the negative behaviors exist, be sure to catch a child doing the right thing and jump on that opportunity to praise and reinforce good choices. Whatever strategy we choose, the building block for success is our next strategy. Structure. 
Establishing rules, schedules, and routines are enormously helpful and create a clear communication and sequence for expectations in a child's day. Anna Merrill of the Children's Resource Group says, provide an organized home and school environment with clear and consistent demands and expectations. Try writing out a daily schedule or creating a picture schedule to help with the transitions between activities. I do this with all of my clients and the positive growth in their overall performance and improvement in behavior is real. I had one student who had no clear lines. There was consistent reactive parenting, which made enormous sense since they received little to no outside support in their home for years. For the child, as a result of being wide open in space to stim, pace, jump, and yell, and occasionally lash out, there was a strong need for structure. After consistent reinforcement of desired behaviors, weekly scheduled events, daily routines broken up into parts of the day, for example, a morning routine, and an increase in responsibilities in a matter of a couple of years, the improvement has been substantial. Not every behavior has disappeared and may never entirely. However, this student has become a functional family and community member who performs tasks independently, sometimes without prompting, and whose communication abilities are spontaneous and appropriate. It's been a case study in how positive reinforcers and consistent routine can change an individual and a family's life for the better. It's also a terrific reminder to fight for all the services you are entitled to as soon as possible. The earlier they begin, the better your prospects. Next, clear expectations through communication. Sounds obvious, but it's a practiced art that's often neglected or done too inconsistently to be effective. Communicating, however that is accessible to your child, what you want them to do and what the rewards will be for their cooperation is necessary for success. Again, here we want to use pictures, words and pictures, or words alone, however your child comprehends best. Are you using an augmentative and alternative communication device known as an ACC? Or a picture system or sign language? Now, great tool picture systems. Whether it's PEX, a GoTalk, an iPad, pictures offer a tremendous benefit for children who are language delayed or who can't read. Pictures used on charts or to label objects in your home are instant identifiers and reminders and can be incorporated into schedules, routines, conversation, hung in opportune locations throughout your house, in the car, and in an emergency meltdown kit. Whatever you're using, however, you must be consistent with it, and it must be available to your child. I've seen iPads stay in the backpacks once a child arrives home, uh, plugged in as soon as they enter the room, they plug them in, and never look at them again till the next day. I always advise encouraging the use of ACCs as a way for a child to tell you what they want. Patience here is critical and difficult when you're tired. I know myself how easy it is to take a small signal, a gesture, or pointing from a child, immediately know what they want, and then give it to them. But this only teaches them that they don't need to use language to get their way. I don't like to get to the point where I have to threaten to take something away from a child. This usually occurs because we haven't taken the time to establish an agreeable reinforcer or aren't being consistent with a plan. People confuse negative reinforcement with a negative consequence, like the removal of something desirable. However, the true definition of negative reinforcer is much different. Remember the word reinforcer is in this phrase. As expressed in the article, negative reinforcement is not punishment. Here's why, by Nate Johnson. 
Negative reinforcement is defined as when a person's behavior causes something to be taken away, which produces an agreeable result. The agreeable result encourages them to repeat the same behavior over and over. As an example of negative reinforcement would be if you're complaining that it's cold out and so you put a jacket on. Now you're warm and not complaining. You've reinforced the desired behavior. Another example from Healthline understanding negative reinforcement is parents complain to their child when their child doesn't clean their room. The child starts cleaning their room to make the parent complaining stop. Now the child cleans their room more regularly to avoid the complaining. So prior we had complaining parents, then the behavior, child cleans the room. After the behavior, no more complaining. Future behavior, child keeps the room clean. Our next tool, creating sensory areas. Exploring sensory issues with professionals such as your child's teachers, occupational therapists, and others can help you identify concerns that might be causing upset in your child, resulting in negative behaviors, tantrums, or meltdowns. Once identified, you can address these sensory needs in your home by creating a sensory area. These areas may include an assortment of comforting devices, furniture and lighting, such as projection lighting to illuminate walls, ceilings, and floors, lava lamps, music, crash pads, bean bags, fidget toys, soft puzzle piece floors, a sensory board, blackout curtains or shades, tents, swings, and so much more. These areas can be very expensive, but I've done a lot of research on how to create these marvelous spaces on a budget. The DIY sensory space can lower costs from anywhere between eight to $15,000 down to $300 or less, depending upon the size of your space and how much you want to fill it, of course. Creating an effective sensory space doesn't have to be expensive or require an entire room of your house. I've helped parents create sensory spaces in their basements, closets, and plan to do more in extra rooms. You can turn a pantry into a sensory area, even the space under your stairs. Just get creative. Sensory areas are great places for your child to be engaged, distracted, and calmed. In a study of multisensory environments, Katie Unwin and colleagues found that educational practitioners have reported that being in a multisensory environment can facilitate behavioral changes in autistic children, and this behavior change can lead to improved opportunities for learning. Our next tool is planned ignoring. I'm an enthusiastic proponent of planned ignoring. Feeding into behaviors by reacting negatively towards your child will potentially cause an escalation in the severity of the behavior and can possibly lead to your child self-harming or hurting you or others. Planned ignoring means that when the negative behavior arises, you don't acknowledge it. It's the opposite of providing your attention. It is planning to withhold your attention following a specific behavior. You want to do this with attention-seeking behaviors and not harmful behaviors. Waiting out behaviors can take time, but as an effective means to a natural extinguishing of the undesirable behavior, it's great. It's incredibly effective if you can remain calm and patient, and I think it's necessary. I have a story from years ago that still cracks me up. Uh, our school went to see March of the Penguins at a movie theater. As soon as the opening credits began rolling, one of my students asked to take a walk. So we went, and while making our way back to the theater, the student wanted a soda. I explained that we couldn't buy one now. This didn't sit well, and she refused to come back in with me, choosing instead to plop herself on the floor at one end of the hallway as I then sat at the other. 
She was incredibly strong-willed, but I ignored her pleading requests because I had already explained to her my decision, and now it was up to her to comply. When finally she agreed to give up and come back with me, I praised her and we entered the theater. But just as we sat down, the closing credits began to roll. Wouldn't you know it? We had missed the entire movie altogether. <laughs> Tough lesson, but she didn't ask for the soda again. Anna Merrill again suggests ignore attention-seeking behavior, in particular when your child has a tantrum. This means avoiding eye contact, keeping facial expressions neutral, and not talking. Return your attention as soon as your child starts engaging in positive behavior. And from my perspective, it works. Again, consistency, patience, and being mindful will increase the likelihood of success. Next, timers. Timers are terrific visual indicators showing an agreed-upon time frame for an activity in progress. Reminding your child as the time runs down prepares them for transitioning out of an activity and into a new one. You may find that over time your child doesn't need a reminder and that the timer itself is enough. I had a client who needed help with his morning routine. I needed to get to know him quickly in order to establish a plan that helped to achieve the goals his family hoped for him and to help resolve his morning tantrums. In short order, I developed a timer routine. This involved designating specific time allotments in between tasks that allowed him to gradually meet the day, like giving him two minutes after I woke him up to lay in bed before getting out. As he became accustomed to his personally designated alarm on my phone, he quickly learned the routine sequence, and so he knew what to expect. He was prepared for how much time he had to transition from one activity, for example, the couch to brushing his teeth and back to the couch, or whatever he wanted to do, walk around, um, and then getting his coat on, etc., until he boarded the school bus. This eliminated his being triggered by a change, and his behavior improved dramatically in the mornings. There are wonderful visual timers for those children who can't tell time. Sand timers are great and come in individual time increments. You want to be careful with timers because they can raise the level of anxiety in a child. So if you notice this happening with uh, digital or analog timers, I suggest trying the sand timer uh, before giving up on the idea entirely. It's a little less threatening in my opinion. Uh, from my experience, it's what I've noticed. No matter what you use, it's still best not to end an activity without warning a child who doesn't have a good understanding of time that the time is running out. To them, a half hour may feel like a few minutes. According to a study by Poole and colleagues, aptly titled, No Idea of Time, being unaware of time and how it lapses may cause great difficulty when a transition from one setting or activity to the next is necessary. Journalist Yolanda Loftus in her article for Autism Parenting entitled Benefits of Using a Visual Timer for Autism, expresses that many children on the spectrum thrive in structured, predictable environments. Visual timers take away uncertainty and provide a sense of control to children with special needs. For children with auditory processing challenges, especially hypersensitivity to sound, an alarm ticking or buzzing loudly would be distracting and disturbing. The next tool is something that I like to use quite often in my practice, and that's social story. I have come to rely heavily on social stories as I see their positive impact on my clients. Social stories show a process. It's a story that's written to help an individual understand social situations, and they occur in a sequence. They use pictures or pictures with words to help your child understand the world as it relates to them. 
These stories can be general or very specific to your child. The National Standards Project classified story-based interventions as an established procedure for increasing social skills and decreasing problem behaviors. And while multiple other reviews of the research have found that the supporting evidence is low or questionable, example, LEAF, etc., in 2020, and that it was difficult to prove that a social story caused a positive change in behavior. In my opinion, the pros of a social story greatly outweigh the cons for the mere fact that it's a form of communication, a tool that gives you a chance at informing and affecting change. I find that they're a way to prepare your child for an experience that might cause anxiety. They are individualized to the child. They provide real-life explanations for a specific situation, like going to the doctor and are easily edited and altered to reinforce in the future should the need arise. According to Dergai and Waman, social stories have become a widely used intervention due to their low cost and accessibility, as well as their capacity to address parents' support needs, such as managing changing behavior. Recent reviews such as Corral and Wolf, 2018, and Key and Adalbus, 2019, indicate the social story research published since 2013 has increased in quality and has also reported relatively higher effectiveness rates. I make social stories often using Google Images and my laminator. And when I say my laminator, I mean anyone else's laminator because I don't have one. <laughs> and finally, the most important qualities to possess for any tool and strategy to have a chance at succeeding, in my humble opinion, are time, patience, and consistency. Change doesn't happen overnight. You are asked a lot as a parent of a child with special needs. The biggest advantage you can give yourself is to find the patience necessary for success. And this means giving up your pride at times or letting go of the inconveniences and frustrations that accompany caretaking to be in the moment with your child. If you can do this along with whatever strategies you pick with consistency, you'll benefit from your investment in Find that your personal and family life will improve gradually, a little bit more for a time, and then more and more. When I see, I understand. When I hear, I forget. In one ear and out the next. But it makes more sense to me when there's something I can see, whether I'm young or if I'm old. It helps to see what I am told. A written word, a picture card, can simplify what might be hard. A visual aid describes it best and gives the voice and ears a rest. From making friends to handling fear, showing me how to make it more clear, there's not much left to explain. When a picture shows my brain, who or where or what you mean, on a clear computer screen, to recall what you heard, a picture paints a thousand words. Author unknown. In the opening of this episode, I announced that I have two new segments for you. The first up is Special Needs Trivia. I'm going to ask you three questions to test your knowledge, and I will post the answers on my website on the community share page. So get ready, put your thinking caps on, and get those Google fingers ready. Here we go. Number one, 
What major disability education legislation was enacted in 1975? Is it A, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act? Is it B, Education for All Handicapped Children's Act? Or is it C, Free and Appropriate Education Act? Number two. The Individuals with Disabilities Education Act guarantees free and appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment. Is this A, true, or B, false? And for our third question, Deaf President Now was a student protest at, where? Pushing for selection of the first Deaf University President, who? Is it A, Gallaudet University and Jerry C. Lee? Is it B, National Technical Institute for the Deaf and Harry Corson? Or is it C, Gallaudet University and I. King Jordan? Good luck in guessing these questions or looking them up on Google, however you get your answers. Maybe you know. That would be wonderful. Um, for your effort, you will win the satisfaction of maybe getting one or none or all three correct. <laughs> Just trying is what I'm trying to say. That's the satisfaction you'll get. Good luck. This next new segment I've decided to entitle, Guess What? You know what? Can I tell you something? It's a did you know factoid from the world of special education and special needs. The first one I have for you is this. Can I tell you something? A good percentage of kids with special needs grow up to become highly successful and sometimes even famous. In fact, there are many celebrities who struggled with a range of learning and other attention issues as kids. For example, Daniel Radcliffe, who starred as Harry Potter in the films, has dyspraxia, a condition which makes doing things like tying shoelaces challenging. Then, there was the Olympic-winning swimmer Mike Phelps, who suffered from ADHD as a child. But it's not just celebrities who have been known to have special needs. Some of the greatest minds in history have had to overcome significant challenges. Thomas Edison, for example, is believed to have had both ADHD and dyslexia, and yet he went on to invent the light bulb. Did you know that? And now for something completely different. In today's Community Share, a remarkable story out of Norway. The article from Good News Network is entitled, White Noise, a Flickering Screen Helps Children with Learning Difficulties to Read and Write Better. A study published in the scientific journal Brain and Behavior is the first of its kind to demonstrate a link between visual white noise and cognitive abilities such as memory, reading, and non-word decoding in children with reading and writing difficulties. The white noise to which we expose the children, also called visual pixel noise, can be compared with giving children glasses. The effect on reading and memory was immediate, explains Goran Soderlund, professor of special education at the Western Norway University of, of Applied Sciences. The results showed that the group with major reading difficulties, particularly phonological difficulties, performed significantly better when exposed to visual pixel noise. They read more words correctly and also recalled more words in the moderate noise conditions. 
the white noise had no effect or negative effects on the good readers and those with only minor reading problems. This is the first evidence of visual white noise having effects on higher level cognition. In this case, both reading and memory, says Goran Soderlund. The children in the study, published in the scientific journal Brain and Behavior, were exposed to different levels of white noise, with the results showing that the amount of noise is critical for reading and memory. You can compare it with being short-sighted and needing glasses. We saw that when we exposed the children to a medium level of white noise, their reading improved. However, reading skills were less good when there was no noise or a high level of noise, added Gorin. These results show that children with reading and writing difficulties can be helped with an incredibly simple intervention. By adjusting screens in school or at home, we hope to be able to resolve their problems at a stroke. This is the first study of its kind, and replications are needed. Remarkable indeed. I want to thank you again for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join me for my next one and in the future to hear about topics close to your heart. I'm honored to have this opportunity to share with you here. All music heard on today's show comes from Jason Shaw of Audionautics.com. Remember to follow me on Instagram, at Special Ed Rising, and on my website, SpecialEdRising.com. If you like the show, please let me know, and tell a friend. Also, let me know topics you'd like to learn more about. And until next time, peace and keep rising. <laughs>